0: May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the, man, the wife should give to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband otherwise your shil- your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved god has called you to peace wife How do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? This is the word of our God.
1: I am just really happy to be here today. This is a great day for worship. It just, um, it's so appropriate we sang a song Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will tell my soul to praise God. I will remind myself that he is praiseworthy. And um, just hearing the word of the Lord and, and the saints together, this is this is a great day to be together. I'm, I'm very grateful. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the word. Lord, I just I just ask that you would be praised by what we do, that we would sing your praises, that we would announce your praises, that we would delight in who you are and what you've done, that you have shown your kindly goodness to us on a regular basis, and Lord, may that cause us to delight in you even more. Thank you for being who you are to us and for making us your people. And uh, Father, uh, as uh, Matthew said this morning, we're we're grateful for the healing that's taken place amongst our our people. We're grateful for uh, Steve's amazing recovery And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to heal him. He's he's still got a little ways to go, I think. And uh, so would you continue to heal and strengthen him? Lord, I thank you for the strength that you've given Jen. She was facing a really unknown future with the condition of how her husband would be. And uh, Lord, she faced it not just with bravery, certainly that, but also with faith, trusting you. And so I pray that uh, whatever lays ahead for the Carlsons as far as Steve's health and and, um, his stability and all of those things go, Lord, that you would continue to provide for Jen the strength and the faith and the trust in you that she needs. And uh, we as a body of believers, I pray that we would respond to their needs as well, that we would help them and and, uh, be there for them as we have been. And thank you for that. Lord, the other big pressing issue is uh, the escalation of the tensions in the Middle East. Um, We have bombed um, rebel bases that were attacking uh, commercial shipping and Lord, as, even though that's a reasonable response uh, to an unreasonable act of violence, uh, Lord, it could really exacerbate things there and make it worse. So would you bring peace uh, as much as we're going to get in this time between Jesus' ascension and his return? Uh, we pray that you would bring stability and peace to that region, uh, Lord, that, uh, that that things would settle down some. That... Uh, in the midst of all the conflict, Lord, your your church would be a different voice than the politics or the pro or anti this or that, but Lord, that we would be announcing Christ in the middle of all that. And uh, Father, now as we turn to your word, would you bless our time, bless our understanding, help us to see what it is that uh, your Apostle Paul has for us this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen, so uh, you remember last week, uh, Paul started with two statements. Um, all things are permissible or legal for me. And the other was the stomach for the bo- food and the food for the stomach. And we kind of looked at those, and they, they were kind of like, um, I don't know, statements that the, the Corinthians appeared to be just reciting. And we asked the question, are they true? And well, yes, and yeah, no. So it was a little complicated. Um, so this week, the Chapter 7 begins with, now concerning the matters you wrote. So this is clearly a, a different question now coming up. But it's really kind of the same thing, because what he does then is he quotes another thing, possibly what they've written to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, it's good for a man to not touch a woman. But we know what kind of touch they're talking about because the rest of the context will explain it. Um, So that's the thing that's being said. You know, as I was studying this this week, I thought, wait a minute, is this still the same church that earlier we heard was celebrating the fact that a man had his stepmother? and now they're saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman? Uh, are, are they really that divided? And it's probably what's going on is there's probably these these two responses to what had happened to the sexual immorality that was going on with the Corinthians. One was acceptance and then maybe this was the other response: is this kind of you know we shouldn't touch anybody. And I think it kind of fits with what we saw last week which is that duality of, of what's the, spe- what is the body for? What does it work, uh, what are we supposed to do with the body? And so this is probably more along those lines, asking that next question is, is it true that it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Um, We need to answer that question really quick. First of all, yes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Good heavens, didn't he just say, you have a man who's had his stepmother. That's not okay, deal with that. And then last week we saw, he said, it's not good to uh, connect yourself with a prostitute. So in that sense, there is a sense to say, yes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. There are out of bound ways of doing that. But at the same time, um, no, it's not true that it's good for a man to not touch a woman. There there are ways where that isn't the case. Uh, For example, in the creation story in, in, in Genesis 2, after God has said for six days in a row, it is good, it is good, it is good. The only thing he says it is not good is when he looks at Adam and he says it is not good for man to be alone. This is not the ideal situation. And so then he takes a rib from Adam and he forms it into a woman, and Adam's first response when he wakes up and he sees Eve standing there is he utters a love poem. He is just blown away by this. He's just gone through all the animals, looking at him, and he goes, well, that one's not for me and that one's not for me, but they got they got ones that are for them and I don't have one and now all of a sudden he sees Eve and it's this is great. One of the one of the kind of cute things in Hebrew is he says this is Ishah for from Ish she was taken. So Ish is man and and she's Ishah. He he liked what he saw. He said this is the what I'm supposed to be with. So in another sense no, it's not good for man to be alone. It's a complicated question, isn't it? There's there's a lot going on there. So As we begin to dig into this section, we have to keep that in mind. There is an appropriate way, there's an inappropriate way. And and I think that's where he he heads with that. Now, before we go any further, there's there's something I want to deal with so that when we get there, we don't have to mess with it, okay? So in verse 10, Paul says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, I say, I, not the Lord. And so this could raise a question of when Paul says that it's his command, not the Lord's, Does that mean that this is optional? Does it mean it's not inspired, it's just his opinion? And we could maybe ignore that because it's just his opinion. Well, it's not. What's going on is when he says in verse 10, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, he is quoting Jesus. Jesus in um, Matthew 5 says, uh, whoever divorces a wife and uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, this is a command that I've gotten directly from Jesus. And so when I tell you this, this isn't me, this is Jesus saying this. So it it's kind of ups the authority a little bit. But what about verse 12? I say, not the Lord. Well, what's going on is Paul is saying, I don't have a direct quote from Jesus that I can give to you. I don't have some, something from the law I can pull forward and say this applies. I'm just telling you this is what I'm telling you. Now, Paul can do that because he's an apostle. He has the authority to do that. I think when we get to chapter nine, we'll take a break and we'll look at what is an apostle. And is Paul an apostle? And in what sense is Paul an apostle? But Paul has the authority to command people to do things. And you get that from Philemon. Philemon is that story about a runaway slave, Onesimus is being returned to his master Philemon. And when Paul returns him, he says, he says in uh, verse eight, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I have the authority to command you to do what is required. And it's required, it's not optional. And he doesn't have any verse to back this up. Instead he says, yet for love's sake, to appeal to you for my child Onesimus. What he's telling Philemon to do is, receive Onesimus no longer as your personal slave, but as a brother in Christ. Release him. I could command you to do that, even though there's no scripture to back that up. This is the apostle having that authority. So when Paul says, "Um, I say, I, not the Lord, that is not optional. That isn't somehow less authoritative. There are plenty of times where Paul tells us to do things he doesn't have a scripture for. So I just want to clear that up, because that that's, can be a sticking point of uh, a little, or at least a distraction when we get there. So the issue at hand is the question, is it good for a man to not touch a woman? It, that's the question. Um, we need to keep that in front of us, because what comes is, is he's gonna talk about different things. He's gonna spend some time discussing marriage, and divorce, and widowhood, and that kind of stuff. But keep in mind, this is all under that heading, It is good for a man, is the question, is it good for a man to not touch a woman? So that's where he goes. So verse 2, Paul is going to say this is the right place for this. And so in verse 2 he says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now the word temptation is not in the Greek. It's not there originally. As a matter of fact, the New American Standard has a more literal translation of it and says, but because of sexual immoralities. They get the temptation. The ESV doesn't, I mean, they're not doing a bad job. They get it because in the next verse or two, it, it says don't allow Satan to tempt you. So the temptation is in the context. But literally, it's because there is sexual immorality, then each man should have his wife and each woman her husband. In other words, what he's saying is there is a context in which this touching or the sexual encounter is appropriate. And for the Christian, that place is only in the bonds of, a co- of covenant marriage. That's the only place that we are allowed safely to explore that, to express that. So he he gives the command, um, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There's more theology packed in there. It is each man his wife, each woman her husband that frames what Christian marriage means, which is one man and one woman joined together in a, a covenant union, in a bond together. So as our society is kind of tumbling around with what marriage means, and we'll deal with that next week. We'll do a deep dive into marriage next week. As our society is is trying to take that apart, the way that God created humanity, Jesus' own words are, a man shall leave his father and uh, mother and cleave to his wife. That's the definition of marriage. It is a a unique union between a man and a woman, her own. You don't get to say, well, I'm gonna fool around with a married person because we're in bonds of marriage, but no your own wife your own husband really defines it down tight what a puritan isn't that just terrible how how limiting we're going to see that this is really actually very helpful and important so then verse 3 and 4 he goes on and he kind of continues to unpack that marriage thing the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so as we begin to define this, this, get this picture of Christian covenant marriage, what you see is this mutuality in it. It's not the husband rules and does whatever he wants and the wife submits to everything. It is, you don't have authority over your own body. Either side of the marriage, you have to take the other person into consideration and so, it's this beautiful, loving union of the two coming together. Um, th- this idea of authority, sometimes it can be used to, as a source of abuse. Husbands claim that, you know, I have authority over your body, so we're going to do this. Well, she has authority over your body and she can say, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> it has to be mutual. It has to be loving and, and caring and, 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 and paying attention to each other. So, there is a proper expression of Christian love, intimacy. It's within the bonds of a marriage, and it is mutually respectful. It is caring for each other in that act. Um, And and because it's such a powerful thing, it can be abused. So is there a right time then to abstain from these things? Is there a time when the husband or the wife can say no? Well, yes, there is. I mean, if you're gonna respect the other person, there has to be some limits on that. But also, Paul says, well, don't deprive each other except for on agreement for a limited time. In other words, one partner in the marriage can't go, well, I'm done. Never again. See ya. It it, it remains mutual in in, in, um, in togetherness. So he says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to things like prayer. Maybe you'll take a fast to to spend time in prayer or in service or something, so there's, there's opportunities here for you to say, well, we'll just take a break from that for a little bit. But he says, you have to come back together. It has to be mutually agreed upon, it has to be ter- temporary, and then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is where the ESV gets that idea of temptation at the beginning. But here's the problem is if, if you're not mutual in your relationships in the marriage covenant, then there is an opportunity for Satan. Now, Satan is um, by no means original thinker. He's very smart, he's very sly, but the only place that Satan will attack you is in your weakness. Where is the weakest part of you? So that's why something like pride can be so dangerous. Because pride is so intimate, it's my opinion of myself. And so Satan can just kind of flam that, do you you know how handsome you are? Do you know what a beautiful woman you are? People just should be amazed at your eloquence, and you can begin to get pride. And that's where Satan will attack, because it may be a weak spot. So if a married couple is not engaged with each other, that's a weak spot, because we have such a strong desire for those things that Satan could go, let's poke that for a little bit. See if we can't drive this person off looking for other people. So that's, it, that's what he means by because of your lack of self-control is Satan is going to go in for the weakest spot in your personality and start prodding. It, it's, it's pretty tragic. It's also extraordinarily easy for him to do these days because the internet. It used to be that when I was a kid to find pornography, you had to find a magazine hidden in the woods someplace. You, you didn't just get on your computer and look it up. It wasn't on TV. Um, now, kids don't have to go anywhere. They can sit in their house, push a button, and it's right there. And so Satan has just amplified that quite a bit. It's, it's a vulnerable spot. And so we need to remember, as Christians, this sexuality, this, this touching, this closeness, this intimacy belongs within a, a proper context. And, and be aware that Satan is going to tempt you. Now, I've got some great news for you. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's why he hits you in your weakest spot, is so you'll be less likely to resist him. But if you can resist, if you can fight against those urges that are calling you to pride or jealousy or greed or sexual immorality, if you can fight against it long enough, eventually he'll give up and go, go away. He'll go find somebody else who's easier. So there is a way to do it. We can abstain. It, it's possible. And we can't express it in an in a appropriate setting. So now verse six, uh, actually verses six and seven, Paul has a concession to make. And I really like the way Rich read it, which was there was a pause before verse 6. This verse, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. That verse is widely contested amongst the commentators. It's all over the map. What does this refer to? Does it refer to what he has just said or does it refer to what's coming? So that's the question. What is this that he's saying I'm making a concession on? Um, without getting into all the nitnoid, detail-y, nerdy kind of Greek usage stuff that I really honestly don't understand well. <laughs> so let's just look at it in context, right? He says, I have a concession to make, not a command. So whatever he's about to say, whatever, whatever he's referring to with this, it's a concession. It's not a command. Verse 5 was a command. In verse 5, the command was, do not deprive, but come together. That was what's called an imperative. It's him telling you to do something. It can't be verse five because it's a command. So he doesn't say it's a concession, not a command, about a command, right? So then it must be verse seven is the concession that he's making. So here's what he says in verse seven. I wish that all of you you were as I myself am, but to each his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul wishes that everybody could be like him. Celibate. Voluntarily celibate. He, he has chosen this in his life to be single and to not express that. He, that's his wish. Here's his concession. His concession is, that, that was my desire, but I'm going to have to concede the fact that you're not all going to be like that. Because everybody has a gift. And your gift may not be the gift of voluntary celibacy. So I can't command you to do this. I have to make this concession to say, well, I'll set my desire aside and say, let's let's go with what the Lord is doing. So what is going on? So this commitment to celibacy, this idea that I will be a committed celibate believer, it's a gift. It's not something you can demand from people. We, We have to be careful with that. We have to take care with that because I think sometimes we can get a little um jaded about those things and just well you know get over it (laughs) well you didn't you're married (laughs) so don't don't enforce that on other people the other thing is i think the singleness thing can be really a huge blind spot for the church i mean a giant blind spot for us Um, in that book i did a sunday school class on a a while ago the great de-churching where they were talking about why did everybody leave the church we lost like 40 million church attenders during covid uh, one of the things that the author said that really stuck with me, I think this is really insightful, is they said, the American church, and especially evangelicalism, is largely built for the nuclear family for those or for those on that track. The young single parent working multiple jobs to make ends meet is going to find it harder, harder to create the bandwidth necessary for meaningful church involvement and be more likely to experience depression and even shame in church culture that creates programs that work for and elevate the nuclear family. You get what he's saying? The way that the American church, especially the evangelical church, is geared toward our programs, our understanding, our approach to ministry is for mom, dad, and one and a half kids, the nuclear family. The reality is that's not the predominant Uh, people in America so much anymore. Um, That's going away. What we're seeing is an increase in singleness. We're seeing an increase in single-family homes. And so if our ministry is geared toward families and we're focused on that and that's what we're gonna do, we're leaving out or excluding a handful of folks who probably could really use a lot more help than the families. So this gift of singleness, we have to make sure we don't assume that's the case for everybody. We have to be sensitive to that, so I want you to be cautious with how you talk with single folks. Um, One of the kind of most stinging things that you can say, and you can mean it in the best possible way, is, oh, the right person will come along. Well, some single folks have been waiting for the right person for a while, and the right person hasn't shown up yet. So that may be a pleasant wish, but it might be a little salt in the wound for them. Or say, "Well, um, well, you have a gift of singleness. Well, some do. Some don't. Some are single because that's the way it is. There's another group that I I think we need to really be sensitive about, and that is those who have same-sex attraction who are believers and want to submit to the Scriptures. They know that they cannot express their sexuality because it's a violation of Scripture. So the option for them is celibacy. And unless the Lord has given them a gift of celibacy, that's difficult. It's a long, hard road to handle. And so we, we should be sensitive to people who are wrestling with that too. And, and be there to help and support and encourage them. Um, there's some, some writers who have talked about these issues. Rosaria Butterfield was a, a, um, a lesbian in a committed lesbian relationship. She was advocating, uh, queer theory and that kind of stuff and she became a believer. And so she talks very sensitively and passionately about homosexuality, the, the desires, those kinds of things. And so she would be a good person to listen to. Another one is Rebecca McLaughlin, she, she's written a couple of books. All through college, she was same-sex attracted. She became a believer, and so she's very sensitive to those things as well. I think we could do well to listen to them. So pay attention to the single person. Be careful with them. Be cautious. Don't, don't assume that they're going to become like you. That would be nice, but that's not the, the ultimate good. That's not the only way to go. It could be that they have a gift. If they don't have a gift and they're still called to celibacy, they need our support and our love. So this is, this is Paul's concession, is to say, I wish that everybody was like me. And in the next section, he'll explain why is it would be so great for us to be like Paul. But that's not the reality. That's not what the Lord has created. That's not how the Lord has made us. And so we have to find that appropriate way to express our sexuality within the bonds of a um, covenant marriage and how to restrain it outside of those things. So that's, that's the difficult thing. So where Paul goes next then is, is he's gonna ask the question, well, um, what does this look like for everybody? How do we do this? How do we express these things well? And he's gonna talk to three different categories, to the unmarried, to the married, and to the rest of us. I'll explain that in a minute, the rest of us. The rest, I thought that was it. So in verse eight, he, he's talking to those who are unmarried and those who are formally married, those who are widowed, for example. And he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. That's my desire. But there is my concession. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If the opportunity to marry comes up, he says, you don't have to not do that. It's not more important or better for you to to remain single. If you have the gift of singleness, then express that. If that is a gift of celibacy that God has given you, then express that, but if it's not, then you're not less of a Christian if you marry. You don't become a a substandard Christian because you've married somebody. Because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Express that that inner sexual desire in an appropriate setting is better than to let it lead you off into weird places. So that's the first people that he addresses. Now verse 10, he addresses again the married folks. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's he's, again, he's citing Jesus' command on on divorce. The question of divorce is much more complicated than just this verse. And so next week when we do our deep dive into what marriage is, we'll also look at divorce and, and what the cases are, but basically, if the question comes up, should a Christian couple remain married? Yes, you should remain married. That's, that's the best, that's where he wants to go. You don't have to divorce because you came, became Christians and it's better to not be married. It's better to just be who you are, be, be who you've been. So you don't have to divorce to become super Christian. You can become super Christian because of the work of the Spirit in you, good news. Let's, let's all become super Christians. Now to the rest, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, others to the rest. So, so far we've got single, formally married, and married. What's the other option there? Well, the other option, this is, remember, this is a Christian view of marriage. So, it's not necessarily the worldly view. This is a Christian view. And this this section, what he's going to address, verses 12 through 16, is believers who are married to unbelievers. So, when somebody becomes a Christian and their spouse does not what should we do? Does it compromise our Christianity? Does it compromise our walk with the Lord? What about this, this high view of marriage that we have in the church and this high view of singleness? And how does that apply if my, my spouse doesn't believe? And so Paul is going to be really careful to explain that to us. So he goes through it and he, he unpacks it for us. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, I don't have a quote for this, but this is, this is what you should do, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, this is, this, I don't, I, I keep wanting to do next week's message today. I want to get into the definition and understanding of marriage, but I'm going to try to restrain myself to just what's in front of us. Proper, correct, real marriage can be between people of different religions or no religion at all. It could be mixed in that way. And it's still a proper and appropriate marriage. Why is that? Because what we saw earlier is marriage is a creation ordinance. It was not good for Adam to be alone. And so Eve was created. And the command was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So marriage was created in the garden. It was before the fall, there was marriage. Jesus himself said that. He said, "It's." it wasn't like this from the beginning. You guys have divorce. It wasn't like that from the beginning. But a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. So marriage is a creation ordinance. That's how it can supersede and go beyond the borders of Christianity or Judaism and be legitimate that people could marry from different persuasions. So what Paul says is, is if you become a believer, your spouse is not a believer, you don't have to divorce them. Your, your Christianity is not compromised by being, being married to somebody who's not a believer. And he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what a beautiful thing to think about. It's, it's not your Christianity gets diminished because you're married to an unbeliever. You're saved because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That person's status is elevated. They are now in a holy position. But notice the kind of words that Paul uses here. Um, Otherwise your children will be unclean, but they're holy. These are temple terms. These are what would be used to describe the temple. And didn't Paul just tell us in chapter six, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So when, when we talk about this unbeliever and this believer coming together, the believer is a temple. The believer is a temple of the, of the Holy God. And so that's why you don't have to send that unbeliever away is because the holiness extends out from the believer and covers the unbeliever. Think about Jesus' ministry. When Jesus would go and he would heal people, there were a couple of times where he didn't even see the person who was sick. He just said, go home, they're better. He healed them from a distance. But when it came to lepers, People who hadn't had anybody touch them in years because they've been suffering from this leprosy. Or the woman with the the hemorrhage who she'd been bleeding constantly, she was unclean. Lepers were unclean. Jesus purposely touched them. He came up and laid, laid his hand on lepers. Why? Because uncleanliness did not communicate to him. Cleanliness came from him and spread out. So it is with the new covenant we are made clean not by our own works or our efforts or or, or some ceremony but because of who Jesus is and so our holiness can extend to cover our family even when they're not holy even when they're not believers and not only is it just our spouse but it is the fruit of our union our children are considered holy just like our spouse would be considered holy it's a beautiful picture of what marriage can do It, it can extend like that now what does it mean that they're holy it doesn't mean that they're saved Because he just said they're unbelievers, so they're not saved. It doesn't mean that they have um, some special condition. What it does mean, though, is this person is put into a beautiful place to hear and receive the gospel because they're united to a believer in a close, intimate relationship. And that's where he goes next in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made whole. Oh, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, That's where he goes in 16. For how do you not know, wife? whether you will save your husband? Or how do you not know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Because they're holy, because they're now in connection with this temple of this Holy Spirit. They're in constant contact, intimate contact with somebody who has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're seeing the gospel acted out in this person's life on a moment by moment basis. And so when they see that, they're getting not just the gospel preached, they're getting it lived out in this person. Now all of a sudden this wife who used to be a pain is submitting and she is, she is serving and what happened to her? This, this is some new person that I'm connected with and I kinda like that. She is just really easy to be with now and isn't that wonderful because she's been changed by the Holy Spirit. And so now maybe the Lord will use that to move that person one step closer to salvation. The children being raised in a household with at least one believing family, that child gets to sit on mom or dad's lap and hear the gospel from a young age. What a blessed place to be in. Do you see why they're holy? They're in a place where they can, they can receive real salvation in an intimate, close relationship. It's just a beautiful place to be. So marriage is a great state, regardless of the condition of your, your spouse. Ideally, we would like to see a relationship be based on what the scriptures say, which is mutual submission, mutual love, mutual authority over each other. The relationship like that would just be beautiful. But if your, believers, if your spouse is not a believer, that's still marriage. You can still be married, and it can be okay. It won't diminish your Christianity. It won't ruin your walk. You can be single and be okay. To be just as Christian as anybody else, that can be a huge blessing, a a beautiful thing for you. What happened in our our country, largely in the 1960s, I think it maybe started earlier, with the sexual revolution, is they took sexual intimacy and they first of all diluted it, made it just as common as anything, but they also exalted it and made it the most important thing in the world. They made it diluted, free love, baby. If it feels good, do it, you you know, uh, quick divorce, go have sex with anybody that's willing to have sex with you and and have a great time. They dilute it, they turned it into nothing, very common, but at the same time, they elevated it to this is the best good you can ever have. This is the one thing you should be pursuing above all else because it makes you feel good. They ruined sex in 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 the 60s is when it became popular. I think we'd done it much earlier. But for the Christian in the midst of this to say a single person could never engage in that, and they can be just as satisfied and fulfilled in a Christian context by serving the Lord. They don't have to follow the way of the world and say, I gotta have sex with somebody. Otherwise, what am I gonna do? I'm not a real person. Yes, you are, you're blessed. You have a gift of God, it's a wonderful thing. And then to say, well, we're gonna enjoy sexual intimacy, but we're not gonna dilute it and spread it across everything, it is for The bonds of Christian marriage, something intensely personal between two people who are dedicated to each other. So it's not like you're going to go to the the break room the next week and say, oh yeah, I shacked up with so-and-so, let me tell you all about it. This is intimate, this is private, this is something between two people who love and care for each other. So this view of Christian sexuality, this view of sexuality in the Christian context, elevates it, lifts it up, makes it much more beautiful, makes it much more real. Even in the context of singleness and and, and celibacy, celebrating celibacy, even in that context, it still rises up and becomes something beautiful and gorgeous. Because don't forget, Paul was single. Jesus was single. He never got married. They, can you think of two people, name two people who had a more Christian life than those two. It's possible, it's glorious, it's beautiful. So what we'll do next week is we'll we'll take a break from 1 Corinthians and we'll, we'll do a deep dive into what is marriage. What do we mean by marriage? Where does that come from? How does that look in a Christian context? And what we'll hopefully find is that it is much more meaningful and much more beautiful than the alternative that the world is offering. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Lord, you have made us, um, Holy Spirit,